You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. This is the last book of the Bible, as you know. And tonight, we're in chapter 8, which is page 1032 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading together Revelation, chapter 8, verse 1. Hear the word of God. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The transition from the seven seals to the seven trumpets is a little like the fabric of a tapestry. Because you see, the conclusion of the first series is in verses 1 three to five. And that's interwoven with the start of the second series in verses two and six. And it's not often that we focus our attention on one verse, although we have done that in the morning. Usually we look at paragraphs or what theologians call pericopes. But sometimes I think there is something so thought-provoking that it's important for us to hover over a particular verse. And when Christ Jesus opens the seventh seal, what follows is utter silence. And to me, the notion of complete silence in heaven is deeply provocative. Heaven is a place of perfection and blessedness, and yet now we're told that it's characterized as without noise of any kind. What is the significance of 30 minutes of dramatic silence in heaven? And how is it that those glorious inhabitants could stand spellbound for half an hour? I think this is the most wonderful and deeply mysterious period of silence that's ever been recorded. It's as if the things taking place or about to take place are too glorious and amazing even to mention or discuss. All the hosts of heaven suspend their worship and their adoration just to listen in wonder. So whatever else one half hour means in eternity, and I don't know what that means, it refers to a hush that is noticeable. The seventh seal is the climax of the series of seals. They all go together. The first four, you remember, referred to the judgments on man endured in this life. The last three seals referred to the things that characterize the life to come. The fifth is the security of the saints under the altar who have departed this life. The sixth is the auspicious gathering of the church before the throne of God. And the seventh is this half hour of silence in heaven, and it's a great mystery. What is it that could interrupt the celestial praise even for a moment? It's hard to imagine unless it's for something of supreme importance. Six seals of judgment are open, the elect are sealed, the whole church is assembled, and right in the midst of the watching universe is the lamb who was slain. 
And John already said that Christ would guide us to the springs of living water in chapter 7. And then the seventh seal is opened with the immediately ensuing half hour of silence. It seems to me that this sacred stillness represents at least seven critical themes. First, the amazing heavenly interlude of silence signifies the stillness of peace. You know, often in the aftermath of battle, a quiet calm settles upon the weary survivors. It's the end of war. It's the serenity of peacetime that is once again enjoyed. And to commemorate such important events, we observe what? Moments of silence. As a matter of fact, in many parts of the world, Armistice Armistice Day is remembered in this very fashion. Every year since the 11th of November, 1918, this date has marked the end of World War I. Two minutes of silence at the 11th hour is observed to show respect and honor to the dead. And there is no reason to think that such a commemoration is lacking in heaven. At the cross, Jesus has conquered all of our enemies and established peace between God and sinners So the host of heaven memorializes this ultimate messianic triumph. Indeed, it says in Isaiah 14, The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. It's the end of all things. It's the consummation here. God has become all in all. And our victorious Christ then delivers the kingdom to his God and Father. And the mediatorial kingdom is now finalized and complete and consummated. And this seems to be corroborated by the parallel description with the seventh trumpet. Revelation 11 verse 15 says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the historical judgments have been inflicted. All the martyrs have now been slain. The entire church is gathered together before the glorious throne of the Almighty. And after opening the seventh seal, the eternal Sabbath is fully and forever enjoyed by the saints. And there's silence. And perhaps even now, as, and perhaps even now as a foretaste, you and I enjoy the peace that passes all understanding. The serenity of the world to come cannot be described by mere words. Totally inadequate. In that blessed eternal state will be absolute tranquility and rest. Isaiah 32 says, My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. No disturbing thought. No unsolved perplexity. No distracting care. God's plan of redemption fully unfolded, all things reconciled in Christ. And this is a rich covenant blessing secured by Jesus, anticipated by the saints and commemorated by this silence in heaven. That's number one. The peace. But secondly, the silence in heaven has to do also, I think, with the humility of the heavenly hosts. Each one of the mere creatures, and that's all they are, are mere creatures, before this exalted lamb, are deeply humbled. 
Job said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Not only sinful men, but any creature, including the angels, are modest in the Lord's presence. Do not the seraphim use their wings to cover their faces and their feet in utter humility before the Almighty? So let's agree that even in the eternal heaven, humility will never die away. Nor should we claim that true humility is inconsistent with everlasting joy. They go together. Some say humility is a deep sense of unworthiness before God. And if that's true, there will never be a moment when you and I feel intrinsically worthy. Remember, no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was found worthy in chapter 5 to open those seals. And so in God's presence, even the glorified existence of the saints is characterized by humility. Forever and ever glorified believers and holy angels singing their anthems, the living creatures and the elders saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. He is worthy. And the voice of many angels that cannot be numbered say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So silence here is an expression of intense humility at the moment of consummation before the Almighty. So it's peace, it's humility. Third, this silent interval also has to do with a profound feeling of gratitude. You remember when Moses prepared the Hebrews for entering Canaan? This is what Moses said. Deuteronomy 27, verse 9. Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you've become the people of the Lord your God. God chose them over every other nation to become his special people. And he redeemed them out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, provided for their needs. He'd given them laws and statutes that were more precious than gold. And all these things identified them as his peculiar flock. And it was an inestimable privilege. And so as a sign of deeply felt gratitude, Moses enjoins this period of silence. And if those Israelites were grateful on earth, what about the saints in heaven? How grateful are they? They've been fully and forever freed from all sin and misery. They have been filled with inconceivable joys. And they cry out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as Jesus Christ finally and forever delivers up the kingdom, the hosts of heaven are silently grateful. So profound is their thankfulness and so deep is their appreciation that words escape them. What can you say? Christ, by his precious blood, has redeemed the church and delivered us from wrath And that's one reason why our salvation is so great, because it's that from which we've been saved. And therefore, Psalm 107 comes to mind. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So it's peace and humility and gratitude. And fourth, this period of intense silence signifies a profound sense of satisfaction. You know, throughout our lives, I believe, We look to and long for the life of heaven, don't we? 
I hope we do. The Christian's greatest desire is to enjoy this uninterrupted communion with God. Philippians 1, Paul expresses this. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, live or die. My desire, he says, is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. Intimate, eternal, uninterrupted communion with the living God. And so the believer throughout the course of his life is ever sighing for holiness and purity. All our days on earth are overshadowed by the grim, dark shadow of death. We dread having to say the saddest, tenderest word of all. Farewell. But in heaven, no farewells. No losses, no death, no bereavements whatsoever. All is life and all is light. And in God's presence, we're sheltered from every threat. Our hearts will be finally at rest and completely satisfied with the fullness of Christ. Psalm 17 says the same thing. I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So you and I as believers, when we go through the portal of death, we'll behold his face. We'll be transformed into his image and we'll partake of his righteousness. And it's for that that every true Christian denies himself and perseveres in the faith on this globe. Because when you and I awake on the other side, we're going to see that exalted Christ face to face. I know that my Redeemer lives, said Job. And at the last, he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And oh, how we'll share with all the hosts of heaven such perfect, lasting satisfaction. At that moment, evil will be overthrown and you and I will be publicly acknowledged and acquitted. The kingdom will be delivered and every blood-bought soul will be speechless. Not a silence of fear, not a silence of dread, but of deep, profound satisfaction. It will not be a silence of angst or uncertainty, but of complete fulfillment. So it's going to be peace, humility, gratitude, satisfaction, and fifth, this noiseless intermission will also signify concentrated expectation. Concentrated expectation. The old world is to be rolled up like a garment. This brand new universe is to be unveiled. And so as the seventh seal is opened, all the voices and the thunders and the lightnings and the tempests will cease. And then what John beheld and he reports to us is this awe-filled stillness as if all heaven were on their tiptoes. And it was, as if, it was as if they were reverently waiting for the full and the final disclosure. The point here is not time. The point is the impressive nature of what lies ahead. The silence signifies the deep and solemn and reverent expectation of the eternal. Psalm 62, the psalmist says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. 
And you know something? Sometimes silence is far more eloquent than words, than even many words. How many times have you heard that phrase? It was a deafening silence. One commentator says, the thunder is rolled up, the lightning is sheathed, there is a prolonged lull, there is silence in heaven. And all the hosts of heaven are waiting with bated breath for what's to come next. Peace, humility, gratitude, satisfaction, expectation. Sixth, this muted half hour also, I think, is an expression of a holy reverence of God. You know, this majestic presence. It's thoroughly awed the hosts in the celestial realm forever. (laughs) In Habakkuk, he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. They stand there in breathless, speechless amazement at the majesty of Christ. Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. Any mere creature seeing the greatness of God is overwhelmed with amazement. We've seen that throughout the scriptures. To see the Lord as he is, beholding his glorified face, is an awesome sight. Zephaniah 1, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And the sense of majesty that's implied here is just too great for words. What possibly could be said in reverence before the Almighty? Another commentator says, Our soul will lose itself in the infinite bliss of communion with him who is its Father and its God. And even now, isn't it true that sometimes in the service of worship there is what we call a holy hush? I'm sure that some of you, or if not all of you, have experienced that. Perhaps not as often as we'd like, but there is this silence of wonder and awe when the Spirit moves in a special way. And we enter to sit at Christ's feet and he speaks and all we can do is worship. Having gathered at the table, he sups with us and all we can do is just bow and wonder. And sadly, some ministers feeling uncomfortable in such a silence, they tell a joke. They're nervous. They don't know what to do with such a sacred interval. And boiling with inward anxiety, they disrupt the silence with a bit of levity. Let's loosen things up a bit. Dr. DeWitt says the full power of silence many of us have yet to learn. I think he's right. But here in this moment in heaven, the heavenly hosts are so overcome with awe and reverence that they're wordless. And it is entirely appropriate for creatures to be hushed in the presence of the Lord. Zechariah 2, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. But then we come to the seventh. And I think the quietness of heaven signified the overpowering love of God. Of the seven features, I believe this last one is probably the most significant. The context implies that this silence is distinguished as something very special. And at the moment of triumph, I want you to know what happens on the golden altar before the throne. Look at verse 4. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
And here we find our great high priest offering up the incense of his merit and his intercession. And with his all-sufficient incense goes something very precious to the Lord. The prayers of all the saints of all the ages ascend in this great cloud. Halt the striking revelations, pause the majestic displays, quiet the thunderous tributes. God gives place to that which to him is highly important, the prayers of his children. F.B. Meyer tells us that in the Jewish temple, the musical instruments and the chanting resounded during the offering of the sacrifices, which occupied the first part of the service. Very noisy. But at the offering of the incense, a solemn silence was observed. The people prayed quietly without at the time of incense, and it provides us with a a glimpse of the intercession of our great high priest. The smoke of the incense of his great merit arises with the prayers of the saints. And so the Lord silences heaven's praises so that everybody can hear his people's prayers. The needs of the saints are more to God than all the psalmody of heaven, according to R.H. Charles, and I think he's right. The whispered prayer of the humblest saint is tremendously important to him. How important then are all the prayers, even the most feeble and the imperfect and the hasty prayers that we offer up. When mingled with the intercession of Christ, they are most precious to God. Proverbs 15, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. I think the cosmic phenomena described afterwards confirms this perspective. Verse 5, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That's in response to the prayers. One half hour of silence in the midst of an eternity filled with joy and celebration. We find here peace, humility, gratitude, satisfaction, expectation, reverence, and ultimately love. Nowhere else do we read of there being a complete silence in heaven. Everywhere else describes heaven as blessed and joyful and festive and perfect. There's only one time when the celebration ceases, and that's when our prayers ascend. What a comforting truth, isn't it? The Almighty God cherishes the prayers of the saints, and so let me ask you, how important are the prayers that you offer at the throne of grace? With the smoke of Christ's incense, they rise before the face of God. And at those times when the last thing you feel like doing is offering prayer, when the last thing on earth I feel like doing is praying, doesn't this truth provide you and I with motivation to be on our knees? It suggests to me that God is far more ready to hear your prayers than you are ready to offer them. The saints' prayers will be a part of heaven's splendor as we watch the cloud rise. And right now they're filling up that glorious heavenly censer in the hand of Jesus Christ. So let's put away any thought about God's indifference to our petitions Some may think that he is far too lofty and majestic and exalted to bother with our petty requests. But the very opposite is true. Heaven stands mute as our prayers ascend, 
And the infinite love of God is such that even the feeblest prayers are cherished. And thus, let's set our minds on things above, not on things here below. That's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and that's where our hearts ought to be. And this is a concept with which most of us, I think, are keenly familiar. A person says of another he loves, she has stolen my heart. Pull the strings of my heart. Or if I am indifferent to my surroundings, someone might say of me, well, his heart is somewhere else. Christians live life on earth to the glory of God, but our hearts and our focus, they're in heaven. Here we fulfill our duty and we engage in our activity and we serve our church and we love our neighbors. But all the while, we long to be with Christ in our eternal heavenly home. Because to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Our hearts are detached, in a sense, from our earthly principles, attached to those of heaven. As Spurgeon put it, where should the wife's thoughts be but with her absent and beloved one? We embrace by faith this invisible, unseen world. We mix ourselves with the business of life, and yet our primary pursuit is the kingdom. And so whenever things of this earth come into competition with the things of heaven, the Christian's clear preference is to pursue the things that are above. When the interests of soul and body are, are compete, we must choose the better part. We put to death what is earthly in us, and we set our sights on glory. And may God use this to encourage each one of us in the journey to heaven. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.